Hey, it's Brent Leary. Once again, it's a beautiful day here in Atlanta. I mean, it's just perfect weather, perfect opportunity to speak with Garish Mathrubutham, who is the CEO and founder of Freshworks. I will now just call him G from here on in. G, thank you for joining me, man. Thanks for having me, Brent. And uh, it's a beautiful day here in Seattle, too. Absolutely. So that's good. So it's East Coast, West Coast, nationwide, good stuff going on here. So, G, I was just thinking back. And actually, Alan Berkson shared this with me. I want to make sure I get this. All right. Now, do you know where this is from? <laughs> Yeah, I think it's probably New York, our first trade show. And uh, I, I am definitely capital G or big G there. Now I'm uh, <laughs> probably small G, <laughs> reduced a lot of weight and feeling good about it. But yeah. that's one picture of myself that I hit. I can't imagine how big I was. Are you kidding? No, this is 2013. Yes. So we're almost nine years. And this is the first opportunity I had a chance to meet you. And if you notice, I'm sitting in front of a laptop because you were actually giving me a demo of the software back then. Yeah. Oh, look at this. Yeah, Alan, CRM Evolution, New York, 2013. And I, if I'm not mistaken, Alan is the one taking the picture. <laughs> yeah. Alan was our first uh, uh, U.S. employee. Uh, uh, and, and, and I used to make fun of him that he was our... Uh, uh, Booth babe. <laughs> yeah, I think he goes by US number one or something like that. Yeah. For that. All right, so that was 2013. Then, let's see if I get this right. So I had been doing the Small Business Trends Conversation Series, I think it's since 2010. This is the first time I had a chance to, to do a conversation with you for that, 2014. And you were talking a lot about how CEOs should spend at least a certain amount of time doing customer support. Yeah, and CEO that's, support, yeah. Later yeah. On. <laughs> uh, it's almost sort of like a, this is your life thing going on here. Now, I also have, let me get rid of this. So the second time we had a conversation, it was during fresh, I think it was the refresh, the second refresh in uh, Las Vegas. And I had a chance to sit down and talk with you a little bit there. And I got a clip from a bit of our conversation back then. I'm, I'm laying the groundwork for the conversation we we're having today. But here's a little clip from our conversation. Four years ago, we talked and you had set up this site called CEO on Support. And you actually, you know, in addition to you, because you, you were jumping on as the CEO and founder of the company, you were still handling first line support calls and you were putting a call out to other CEOs to kind of do the same thing. Now that was four years ago. I, you know, your company has grown a lot bigger since then, but do you still try to keep your hands sometimes involved in those first line support activities? Uh, yes, even uh, like I always uh, monitor Twitter uh, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Facebook or social media. So when customers reach out for help, so I am responding to customers and copying our teams to come and do the right thing. So I also do email support. 
See, I think uh, I am. I would like to say I am not the CEO on support. I am the support guy who became CEO. All right. Now that quote stuck with me. See, I even had to put up a quote box. Now I will say you kind of alluded to it. You're looking really good. I mean, you look good back then. But man, you're looking really good. Does, does no, the- no, thanks for that. And uh, maybe if I can share a small uh, uh, trivia, I don't know if that question is coming, but uh, I, I still look at support even, uh, uh, in fact, uh, even as of half an hour ago. But now I think with such a big uh, team, I still read uh, supports. Like we had a customer whose credit card was failing and there was a billing issue and he had directly decided to escalate to me. And uh, so... I, I kind of now have the luxury to directly pass it on to our billing team, but I still try to drop a note to the customer saying, hey, uh, sorry for the trouble and, and we'll take care of you. Don't worry. And so so I think uh, I, I've been over the years. It's a good nostalgic thing that you showed all these things. I just realized <laughs> I've been doing what I've been doing and you've been doing what you've been doing. So, yeah, except for you seem to get better with age. I just aged. So I don't know how that works, but. So, yeah, that was going to be a question I was going to ask you. Thanks for kind of answering that already, because I wanted to kind of lay the groundwork because you started the company in 2010 and you took it public just last year. A lot of things happened before it went public. It's ha- it hasn't been a full year since you've been public, but has there been, or should I say, maybe you could share with us some of the major differences, if there are any, um, that you face or you feel you had to to make going from, you know, pre-IPO to being listed on NASDAQ? Okay. Should I, uh, uh, do you want a serious uh, proper answer or do you want a fun analogy uh, uh, that? I like fun analogies. We can get serious later. We can take the fun analogy now. Yeah, so I think uh, uh, the first thing I would start by telling you is uh, after being a VC-funded company for almost eight, nine years uh, before taking Freshworks public, I think now I can say that being a VC-funded company is like being a a bachelor who can party hard, VC money is more forgiving, you can have all the fun that you want. Uh, But also at the same time, uh, going public is like getting responsible and starting a family. So that's the analogy that I thought. Mm. But if I think more about it, it it, it actually rings even more true when you look at, okay, the IPO itself is is the wedding where everybody comes together and and, uh, uh, celebrating with you. And and, uh, then you realize after getting into marriage that, oh, God, there is increased, just like marriage, there's increased governance, there's increased compliance requirements, there's increased transparency needs, and uh, you're enjoying the honeymoon with the stock pop and everybody's congratulating you and feeling happy and then the market crashes and everybody leaves and then you are left worrying about, like in marriage, you're wondering, okay, what did I get myself into? And then here comes the kicker, right? You talk to other CEOs and then you realize, okay, everybody's in the same boat and that's comforting, right? So that's the fun analogy of... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the difference between being a VC-funded private company and uh, being a public company. And one thing I want to point out is you gave me a lot of, you gave you, you kind of ribbed me a little bit on the last year's analyst call because I was wearing, I think it was a GoDaddy hoodie. I just want you to know. Oh, that, awesome. Yeah, that's a great. 
Alan got me the the new fresh hoodie. It it uh, matches with my Super Bowl champion Rams hat, so I'm all rocking this for you. In the awesome. to talk with you, man. I, I still need to get one of those hoodies. I would ask Alan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, talk to Alan. He'll yeah. be able to get you one. All right. So, what's been the most challenging aspect of being a a public uh, CEO of a public company versus when you were able to, you know, kind of still be under the radar as a private company? So I think uh, uh, just having to be a little bit more measured and cautious with everything that you say. And, and see, I am a person who generally speaks from heart and uh, my philosophy in life is, okay, if you always speak the truth, you don't have to remember anything. So, uh, but now I have to remember, okay, uh, there's a set of audience who are, who have access to this information. There's a set of our audience who doesn't, or is not supposed to have access to this information. And, and I need to really, uh, think about okay, what if this person is a shareholder? I cannot give them material, not public. So, so thinking about making that adjustment to kind of constantly uh, ensure that I'm saying the right things and I'm not giving away stuff that I'm not supposed to give out. So, I think that uh, was initially hard for me to just get. Uh, it took a few, uh, I'd say, months to get uh, used to uh, because. Uh, that was not uh, who I was. Like uh, I always just go out, stand in front of employees and share everything and uh, had fun doing it and believe that was the right thing to do. Now you have to worry about, okay, what can I say? What can I not say? And and because being in the uh, public scrutiny and, and being responsible to make sure that everybody has the same level of access to information, that change required some practice. I think, I think that's hard. And balancing the short term and the long term. So as a, a, a founder, you always want to focus on the long term and public investors also want founders to focus on the long term because they are all in it for the long journey. And how do you do that while still coming back to uh, report on the short term, trying to uh, balance for that and, and uh, um, communicate what's happening and, and ma managing the short term and the long term both becomes really important because the short term from a company standpoint, from the money that we have in the bank standpoint, it doesn't change. It's, it's the long term that matters. But from employees wealth standpoint, shareholder wealth standpoint, things could change. Uh, uh, the number could be very different after or before the earnings call and, and uh, people uh, like really get emotional about it. And uh, uh, so it's important uh, to recognize the responsibility of the CEO. And those are all, I think, uh, for any CEOs going through this transition from a uh, private uh, VC funded company uh, founder to uh, becoming a, a public company CEO. It, it is a learning process and I'm enjoying it as a learning process. That's my reason for going public is, hey, I've been a reasonably successful VC funded uh, CEO and I can keep doing that. And there was enough private money available and we didn't need money when we were going public, but uh, we went because we had the opportunity to be the first SaaS IPO from India. And uh, so that was exciting. And, and, the other important thing personally for me was, hey, what's the next journey for me uh, is, okay, how can I learn uh, how to become a public company CEO and run it? So, Talk a little bit about the impact of Freshworks being that first SaaS company from India, tech company to, to go public. What does that mean to like you, the company, and 
in the India, in the community over there where you first got started? Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, uh, we managed to inspire a whole ecosystem of founders. So I'll start with uh, me. So what the Freshworks IPO meant to me uh, personally, as, as any startup founder, uh, I think this is like, and I said this uh, from the NASDAQ stage, I, I felt like an Indian athlete who has won the Olympic gold medal, right? So uh, that was truly the feeling. Uh, it was definitely the dominant feeling was happiness. There was also a feeling of fulfillment because at the end of the day, you have created the currency uh, for people who believed in you in, in all these years, the early investors, the employees, early employees who have uh, spent years of their life working for us. The stock price could be $40, $50 or $20. That doesn't matter. But at the end of the day, whether it's $5 billion or $10 billion, still for most of the employees and most of the early investors, it, there is a currency that now they can trade, there where they can see the fruits of their labor. So I felt a sense of fulfillment for my one set of my responsibilities towards those early investors and employees, as I was fully aware that I'm taking on a new set of responsibilities towards the public investors who are uh, putting in the money. So that was uh, how I felt personally. I think for our team, it, it was clearly uh, a big celebration moment because a lot of times uh, uh, people advised me and, and this advice holds good for many founders that they, they actually say, Hey, don't make the IPO a big event. Uh, like it's just a milestone. Uh, keep going because the journey is more important. But at, like uh, however much you say and do, but we really made it a big event because it was uh, a celebration of SARS for India. And uh, I think uh, all of our employees got so many congratulations from their uh, friends and relatives and family members. And, and we created a lot of wealth for employees. So everybody was excited for our employees and in fact, there were uh, memes and uh, uh, jokes on Instagram and others where people were saying, uh, oh, uh, like, uh, uh, I should have uh, swiped left on that guy on Tinder uh, from Freshworks. And so, oh, <laughs> so uh, I don't know if it's a left or right. So, but, <laughs> I don't know either. <laughs> so, uh, but, but I think it was great for employees. And I think uh, what was really uh, gratifying for me was Every founder, like uh, what it meant for India, the startup ecosystem, the, the, what it meant for the VCs who, the, the, you know, that India did not have a lot of exits. Like Flipkart uh, acquisition by Walmart was the first big exit for uh, VC investment in India. And then uh, our IPO and the Zomato IPO in Indian markets happened around the same time. So those were two big events where the ecosystem saw exits, which is a very, very important thing for investment money to pour into the country. And I think uh, clearly every founder celebrated our IPO as if it was their own IPO. And uh, I think uh, it was uh, gratifying for me to say, uh, see that happen. And I think we have managed to inspire an entire nation of uh, founders to kind of believe that they can do this and it's possible. And, and uh, I think I've also talked about this. Uh, my role at Freshworks is, I call it the equivalent of the Roger Bannister moment where uh, running a mile, four minute uh, mile, right? Four minutes, uh, a four minute mile. So I think once it is done, uh, everybody gets the belief and everybody starts doing it uh, more and more. And I think that's what is happening to India. Right? So five years from now, what do you expect from the tech community in India? Do you expect to see a, a 
like a steady stream of tech companies going public, more VC money being poured in? It, it's happening now. I, I, I have talked about this. Uh, I believe that this decade is going to be the decade of India as a product nation. And like in 2015, 2016, we were a group of folks who were coming together with this dream of India as a product nation. We started initiatives like SaaS Boomi, where we had a paid forward conference where we wanted to help other founders. And, and in 2016, when there was a show of hands of how many companies have more than 5 million revenue, like Freshworks was the only hand uh, that went up. Uh, from there, today, we have uh, come so far along that there are so many great companies, uh, multiple unicorns, whether it's Chargebee or Browser Stack or Postman. Uh, so there, there is the next uh, set of in global product companies from India uh, that are coming. And I think already we are seeing that uh, and I'll share this uh, uh, story with you. In 2011, when I started our fundraising process, uh, VCs in India would not travel to Chennai to meet me uh, uh, from Bangalore or Delhi or uh, Mumbai. And uh, they would set up the meeting, but then they would cancel uh, one day ago because it was understandable that they didn't they couldn't fill up their calendar with multiple uh, companies to meet. So it didn't make sense for them to travel all the way to meet this one company in Chennai. So from there, today, we have matured into an ecosystem where there's so much money chasing uh, the next Freshworks or the next uh, browser stack or the next Chargebee. And uh, I think this is going to be uh, a very long, durable growth opportunity for uh, Indian, uh, what we call it India SaaS, uh, uh, like building global SaaS products from India. All right, that, that's fascinating. I, I will definitely be trying to, Keep an eye open to see how that progresses because that really sounds pretty fascinating. But let's turn to Freshworks. Um, what is going public meant to the company? And what's the biggest change the company overall has you know, had to adapt to as a public company? Yeah, I think uh, the biggest change uh, in operating as a public company is and, and this is a journey we've been on uh, even 18 months, two years before the IPO because you have to get the company ready to operate in this new mode. Uh, so I think it's about readiness and readiness in, when I say readiness, I mean operational readiness and execution readiness. So operational readiness uh, like means, are you ready from your back office systems? Like do you have uh, uh, the, like the ability to close books in a timely manner so that you're ready for the earnings. Do you have the ability to like make sure every order is tracked, all uh, the revenue uh, recognition is uh, perfect? Uh, like, do you have control on your spends? Do you have approval processes in place? Can you make sure that everything is, uh, uh, the systems are uh, ready? So that's operational readiness. So we had to go through a NetSuite implementation pro project because we were using some other system and we had to put in place a, a ton of uh, backend systems and that is all uh, continuing effort which is starting to pay off now uh, the other end is execution readiness what i mean by that is predictability in revenue like can we really tell uh, and it's it is uh, actually hard for us right as a, a vc funded company when you're really growing at in the early years we were growing uh, like 5x and 3x uh, every year so nobody actually cares whether you are 3x or 3.5x or 3.2x because uh, it's still a lot of growth and everybody's happy. Uh, now we are supposed to like 
really uh, bring so much predictability into the business that we can guide the markets on what do we expect to close uh, this quarter, next quarter, and for the year, and come in within reasonable striking distance range of that. And and we have uh, like an a dual model, like we have the long tail of SMB customers, an inbound model where uh, it's it's shorter life cycle. It's not like we are dealing with uh, Fortune uh, 500 customers. We are dealing with Fortune 5 million customers, right? So so how do you predict how much revenue you're going to make building those systems? So execution readiness is how do we bring predictability in uh, revenue forecasting? And, and those are all uh, big changes that are happening and, and are continuing to happen and we're getting better and better. So I think uh, what does not change is uh, our opportunity. Like we operate in like three really large uh, markets. In, uh, and probably I should use this to say, tell what Freshworks, what do we do at Freshworks? So, uh, so first of all, at Freshworks, uh, we envision a world where people actually love using their business software. And I'm saying this because we are all, uh, we know that enterprise software is usually clunky, bloated and expensive. And I've not met a lot of uh, uh, users or employees in companies who say, hey, I love using my software, right? Uh, <laughs> whether it's CRM or, or uh, uh, ticketing system or whatever. So, so we have this big, bold vision that we envision a world where employees actually love using business software. And we build customer engagement and employee engagement software. We take a fresh approach to building software that's designed for the frontline users of the software. And we make it fast, affordable, and easy. So that is uh, uh, the journey that we are on. And the opportunity to do that is still the same before uh, going public and, and now. So we operate in uh, really large markets when the CRM market and on the employee engagement market. And uh, I think uh, we can keep going our, our mission, our culture. So these remain the same and will continue to remain the same as we scale the company and we scale the culture. So, uh, cool. All right. So let's talk about potential change. I mean, you started in 2010. We're 12 years in. Um, has your definition of CRM, customer experience, customer engagement, has it has it changed? Has it evolved over 12 years? And maybe the other component I would like to add is, because you mentioned employee engagement, has employee engagement changed the way that you looked at customer engagement? Definitely, uh, it has changed. And I would say uh, it has changed predominantly in two vectors. So, okay, let's talk about customer engagement first. So, one of the biggest changes that we are living through right now and, and accelerated through COVID is every consumer business today wants to engage with their customers on digital channels. Now, when I say digital channels, it's different in different parts of the world. In India and Asia, it's a lot of WhatsApp. So businesses today engage with customers only on WhatsApp. Like you buy something, your order notification comes on WhatsApp. You have a question, uh, the customer types in a chat on WhatsApp and the business listens and responds on WhatsApp. If they want to send you a marketing offer, it comes on WhatsApp. So in, and that's in India and Asia. So, but in the US, that is starting to happen on text messaging. So like old businesses do everything with email, right? So like, let's say uh, you go uh, 
you receive marketing, uh, spammy marketing emails where uh, people can come and tell you, hey, do you want a home loan or, or do you want a car loan, right? A, a financial institution may send you that marketing email. Today, everything is uh, like targeting you on Instagram or on text messaging. You go and visit Wells Fargo Bank from Atlanta for a, a, a home loan. So maybe you can get a personalized marketing message and a text message saying, hey, here, uh, ch chat with an Atlanta home loan advisor and here are some properties that you may be interested in Atlanta. So everything has become personalized. It's happening on digital channels and businesses have to now engage with customers on those channels. The second change that has happened is the lines of are blurring between sales, marketing and support, especially between support and sales. Now, now let's say uh, uh, like, let's take Allbirds, which is a fantastic shoe brand and they are selling through uh, allbirds.com. They, they're not selling through any stores, right? So now if you buy, if you go to their website and uh, you're looking at a shoe, and then you don't add it to the card or you add it to the card, but you don't check out, you come back. Now their marketing will actually uh, send you an offer saying, hey, come back, uh, uh, Brent, and buy this nice pair of uh, uh, red shoes that you wanted. Now that's a marketing conversation. Now you may have a question, hey, how does this shoe fit? Now you're not a customer yet. Now that could be because now it's a sales conversation, but you're doing it from text messaging. Does it fit like Nike or Adidas? So it's a sales conversation. The product specialist would be actually helping you. But let's assume that you purchase the product and then you ask the question. In, in the old world, it's a support conversation. Hmm. So we are moving to a new world. How CRM has changed is the lines between sales, marketing, support are all blurring. The business is having conversations with customers. And you have to, the companies, businesses have to figure out how to route it internally, how to bring the right person to support the customer. But the customer is having a conversation with the business. That's the biggest change that's happening in CRM. And that creates the opportunity to break down the silos of sales, marketing, and support. And that is where you're seeing all these large companies today trying to invest in a customer data platform and trying to pull all the data from sales and marketing and support system to, to help the person who's talking to the customer, who's having a conversation with the customer with everything that's happened. And what we are saying at Freshworks is, hey, if you don't have that legacy sales or marketing or service clouds, you don't have to start with that approach. You could start with a new unified customer record. And, and that's the premise of our uh, approach to CRM. I think we are going to see a new world centered around the customer. Very interesting. How has your relationship with your customers evolved? Let's say just over the last couple of years, because I was sort of like, mark things in pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. We're about two and a half, we're getting close to two and a half years into this thing. How has the relationship you have with your customers changed? And your customers are mostly B2B, right? Are they telling you how their relationships with their customers change so that you can help them with that change? Yes. So... <clears throat> One of the things you have to uh, understand, Brendan, you know this, uh, Freshworks, uh, like our relationship with our customers for the last 12 years has been mostly virtual, even before COVID, because we started the company in Chennai and we have been selling globally. We have customers in 120 plus countries. So 
the big Freshworks was international from day one. Our first customer came from Australia. When we had a handful of customers, they came from four different continents. So, so the switch to a virtual uh, world in COVID was actually, I should say, relatively speaking, easier for Freshworks than it is for uh, a few other enterprise uh, sales uh, SaaS companies, which actually have a high touch relationship with customers. So we don't uh, wine and dine our customers. We don't meet them in ball games and, and things like that, right? So so we actually have been selling on, it, it used to be uh, log me in and the go to meeting and then uh, WebEx and uh, uh, Zoom. So in, uh, maybe uh, uh, there was some WebEx in the middle, but, but uh, it, it was always uh, virtual for us mostly. And not to say that over the years, we also have local offices. So uh, where we have been for our mid-market customers, we have been able to uh, have a little bit more of a relationship-based uh, selling and approach. Uh, but uh, the switch to virtual was relatively okay for us. When you look at our customers, I think uh, we cannot say the same thing, right? Uh, many of them, especially, and, and we are a horizontal company where our customers could be consumer companies, it could be e-commerce brands, it could be B2B companies. So, so each one of them went through a different phase, but the hardest transition was, as I explained, had been for consumer companies where how do they continue their business when employees are not coming into the office and customers are not coming into their stores? So they have to engage with customers on like, modern digital channels and they had to empower their employees who are working from home. And I think we were able to uh, really be in that space. Like, of course, they had other challenges like delivery. Like, for example, if you're uh, uh, with COVID, you are uh, you have to deal with uh, so many other challenges. But in our world, customer engagement and employee engagement, we were able to play a meaningful part uh, for helping our customers engage better with their customers or empowering their employees with the solutions that we I've been having this ongoing conversation over the past year about the correlation between employee experience and customer experience. Some people say that it's highly correlated. So if you increase the you know, or make it a more pleasant experience for employees, that automatically translate over to a, a greater experience for customers. Then I have other folks who said there's really no direct correlation. You can, you know, you can pay somebody a lot more money as an employee. That doesn't necessarily generate a better customer experience. What's your, what's your thoughts on the correlation between better experience from an employee perspective? Does it equate to a, a better experience for a customer? I'm squarely on camp one. We have said happy employees create happy customers, and and there is no other way. And if, if employees are not happy, so we believe that happiness is contagious, right? So even on the phone, uh, that energy and excitement. So you cannot build or you cannot have happy customers if you don't have happy employees. That's my core belief. There's a big discussion now. It really kind of started when Apple did the update the 14.5 around customer privacy or giving customers the, the ability to have more control over where their data goes. How important is not just customer data privacy, but the ethical treatment of customer data? 
what role does that play in customer experience right now? So I think, uh, first of all, customers own their data, right? And experience is all about making customers' life better. Like, uh, I'll, I'll take an example. Like, if Google is looking at my uh, data and telling me, hey, Girish, it's time for you to leave to the airport uh, because your flight is going to leave in an hour and, and uh, the traffic uh, conditions are like it, it's correlating all the data from my email, from my uh, maps and uh, uh, like from the flight information and telling me that that is value uh, that as a customer, I'm willing to uh, actually uh, because I trust uh, the company, the, the benefit that I'm getting from that insight uh, is actually more uh, according to my personal opinion is uh, like I would probably trust that. But letting users have that level of control and trust is, is I think, fine uh, because they are going to have an experience uh, based on what level. And, and I think products should be able to be flexible around that. Now, as a vendor, we take privacy and security really, uh, we, we are in the data business, right? Not in the software business. As a SaaS company, if, if we don't protect our customers' data, so uh, then we don't have a right to be in, in business. So I think uh, we are very clear on that in terms of how our approach is. But having said that, customers having the uh, right to govern how much of the data that they want to give, I think is a step in the right direction. And if the software is flexible enough to fine tune the experience, then it's the customer's choice. And uh, see, uh, I, I run a customer uh, and experience company. So and we always believe customer is king. So uh, give the king what they want. So. <laughs> awesome. Um, so when I started promoting this conversation, a lot of people were really interested in it. Let me show you this though. This was really, I thought really telling. This is a, a, a Freshworks employee. At the start of 22, 2022, my chosen word for the year was empowerment. It is a pleasure to work with a leader whose primary objective is empowering others. I'm excited about the future. How does that make you feel when you hear one of your employees talk like that, really about you? <clears throat> Definitely makes me feel happy. And I also know this. Uh, see, uh, so my fundamental belief is I cannot close the door through which I came in, right? I, I know that when I was an employee and I uh, worked my way through the ranks, the number one thing that I enjoyed was that empowerment and operational freedom. And, and like, if that is what created happiness for me, then as a leader, I should know that that is what creates happiness for my employees. When, when they feel that, hey, they are respected, they are valued, and they are empowered to go and do what they believe is the right thing for the company. So there were a lot of folks that were sharing this conversation going to be taking place. I mean, I think Freshworks has one of the more active uh, social group of employees there is because they were very excited about this conversation. How do you keep that excitement going? I don't know if there's any specific or, or significant changes since the IPO that you've had to do 
or make when it comes to keeping employees happy with what they're doing, happy about not only their job, but the company and the person that they work for and with. How difficult is that, you think, going forward now that you are a public company and you may have to do things a little different than you were able to do them you know, before? See, I think at the end of the day, it all boils down to ownership and pride. So, and I have told this multiple times, and even today I told this to somebody that I'm not building G's company, right? And and so we are building a world-class company together. So, so if somebody uh, who's leaving Freshworks after six years, eight years come and uh, so they get very emotional and they say, thank you, uh, G and, and everything. Uh, like I, uh, I'm, I'm like grateful for Freshworks of giving me so much and so on. I actually say, I should be the one thanking you, like because we built this together. Freshworks wouldn't be what it is today without the hard work and sweat and tears and blood of so many employees who have toiled. So we have built this together. And I think that is the answer to your question, ownership and pride. So when people, when enough people feel that Freshworks is their company and they're proud to be associated with it, I don't have to do much. Uh, I think uh, making sure that we don't lose that is is what I need to uh, ensure that uh, we work on as a company and as a management team. I loved her enthusiasm about the future. But what do you see in terms of the future a couple of years out? Let's say, generally speaking, what what uh, what do you see for business and customer experience and customer engagement, just generally speaking, and then maybe what do you see for Freshworks as well in the future? So for business in general, I, I'll probably uh, use the analogy that I wrote in the uh, in RS1. So the analogy is, uh, Brent, I'll probably take you back, uh, uh, I don't know, what, 15, 16 years and, and uh, go, go to 2005, uh, where both of us were using uh, maybe, if you remember, a, a SanDisk MP3 player, a Canon point-and-shoot camera, maybe a Motorola or an LG cell phone, uh, and a TomTom GPS, if you still remember those things. <laughs> so as consumers, we bought we bought all this technology, right? Because we believe that, hey, technology is evolving and it's solving a problem for me. And, and I would like, because I need to take pictures and I need to listen to music and I need to navigate from A to B. So I will buy all this technology, right? And when Apple launched the first iPhone, most of uh, us do not realize that the first iPhone, Apple did not introduce a single new chip. The first iPhone was actually assembled using commercially available technology and it gave us unified product experience. And as consumers, we suddenly saw the benefit of this unified product experience. And rather than carrying all these four or five devices and a backpack full of chargers and, and battery packs, we threw away all of that and switched to this new unified product experience. But if you think about the music that you're listening to, Brent, probably you're still holding on to the same music that you enjoyed <laughs> in your childhood the pictures of your family and kids and friends. So we threw away our MP3 player, but we held on to the music. What does that tell you, right? And that is the question to ask. Today, if you switch over and ask this question, what if there is an iPhone moment in business software? 
So businesses have over time invested in buying so much technology. So over the, if you take if the, the CRM stack uh, for every company, right? So you have sales uh, software, you have marketing software, you have customer support software, you have chat, you have bots, you have cloud telephony, social media listening, lead enrichment, uh, outbound uh, sequences. So you're buying all these technology pieces because you believe that I need to do this. And then you are suddenly stuck with so many devices. And what if there is a new unified product experience which brings together all of that where the music for the business is still customer conversations. And, and that's what businesses care about to be able to understand their customers and, and engage them effectively. Most of this technology can be abstracted and, and uh, consumed in a unified product experience like how iPhone taught us. I think that's what I see in general happening uh, for the business. Now for Freshworks, I think we are on the journey uh, for to create uh, a unified CRM for uh, that breaks down the silos of sales, marketing and support powered by uh, this uh, unified customer record. That's an important, interesting part of our journey. And also we uh, the other part of the journey is we are on track to build an iconic product company, a, a global brand that comes from India that like and, and we are excited about that journey and uh, we will continue going. The market is huge. We are just uh, we feel like we're just getting started. Any acquisitions? I know you guys have bought a couple. Well, I should ask this. Are there any pieces to the puzzle that you got your eye on that you think you're going to need over the next several years? See, in the past, we have always had uh, like taken an opportunistic view. What has changed now as a public company is we have a, a roadmap of what we want. And uh, so we have uh, like specific areas where we evaluate uh, build versus buy. But we are not looking to uh, make any big acquisitions uh, because we don't need uh, to make acquisitions for revenue growth. So our approach to M&A is uh, look for good tech or good talent, mostly like smaller tuck-ins uh, that we would want to do, uh, which can give us a, a, a go-to-market advantage. Uh, but broadly, the other aspect of it is uh, our, our uh, we didn't talk about it today, but our Neo platform uh, really powers a lot of uh, shared services, foundational services, which gives us the ability to do more. So we are able to build so many products at Freshworks thanks to our uh, Neo platform, which uh, enables us to power innovation. So a lot of times we end up building over uh, buying because it's easier for us to build thanks to the top tech talent that we have in India, as well as the Neo platform, which gives us the velocity. Gee, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking time to do this. Um, no, thank refresh. You. Is there going to be a refresh this week, this year? Yes, uh, we will announce it soon. Yeah, uh, and then the hopefully time... in person, uh, uh, not hybrid or virtual. <laughs> I think hopefully we'll have it in person, and uh, looking forward to that. Well, gee, thanks again. And it's very cool that your son is about to become a a hokey. Uh, I, I kind of like that. <laughs> Joining the East Coast here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I'm I'm uh, uh, really excited about that. But at the same time, I'm uh, like, 
I have two boys and uh, the younger one is also going into college next year and uh, uh, like we will be empty nesters soon and uh, that's kind of uh, really, uh, I, I'm kind of uh, starting to worry about that. <laughs> starting to worry or starting to look forward to it? Uh, uh, I don't know. Right <laughs> now it looks like maybe a bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be all right. It'll be good going uh, going to the future, but Thanks again, and definitely looking forward to speaking with you again, hopefully maybe at Refresh, but uh, definitely congratulations for all the success, going public, and continued success. Thanks, thanks, Brent. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Okay, folks, thank you for joining me. We'll be back tomorrow with the CRM players, me and Paul Greenberg. So in the meantime, have a great rest of the day.